Good morning. Nice to see all of you this morning. Glad that you have uh, made time to gather to worship the Lord. We are going to be in the book of Titus today. We're getting back into our series on Titus, which is almost over. We've got this week and next week, and then that series will be over. But we're going to be back in Titus today. If you do not have a Bible with you, but you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles in the chair racks in front of you. And we also frequently have with us people who are not familiar with the Bible. And so if you don't know where to find Titus, it's on page 998 of the Bibles that are there in the chair racks in front of you. As you can see from uh, the graphic on the screen behind me, the title of this series is The Good Life. There are competing narratives for what the good life is. Our culture has a narrative for what it means to live the good life. And that cultural narrative of the good life is often at odds with the biblical narrative of what constitutes the good life. What is the good life according to the book of Titus? Well, you could summarize it simply as a life of good works that is a joyful response to the grace and the good news of what Jesus has done for us. We pursue this life of good works. We pursue a community of people who are followers of Jesus, a community that is flourishing as a response to the grace of God, not as a means of getting it. And that's a key distinction. We are constantly responding to the grace of good and goodness of what the Lord has done for us. And if you remember, this, we call it the book of Titus, is actually a letter. And it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young man that he had been mentoring in ministry who was now uh, ministering on the island of Crete, which is an island just off the coast of Greece. And one of, uh, one of the tasks that Paul sets before Titus is that as there are all these little Christian communities that are forming on this island, Paul recognized their need for leadership. And so one of the very first things that he wanted to do, according to chapter 1 and verse 5, was to appoint elders, to appoint pastors in all of these communities. And then he goes to lay out some of the qualifications for these pastors. And one of the interesting things about these qualifications for pastors is that they do not read like our modern job descriptions for pastors. Read a modern job description for a pastor and you will find all sorts of things that may be helpful, may be good, and may be true, but miss the actual biblical qualifications for pastors that are laid out in the Bible. And one of the things that you will notice as you read through the biblical qualifications for pastors is that they are primarily character-based. Now that does not mean that as long as you have good character and no skills, you're good to go. Okay? We would hope that the people leading our churches have some sort of organizational or speaking or leadership skills but, but none of those things matter. In fact, they are undercut constantly. And you can see story after story after story about this. They get undercut if they are not, uh, if they are not supported by character. There are character qualifications for these pastors because 
pastors have a responsibility of leading their flocks into the good life, which means that they need to at least be attempting to practice what they preach. Now, of course, there's always a gap between who, what the things that we say and the things that we do. Hopefully, it's a, a gap of weakness and not hypocrisy. There's always a gap, but we ought to be, as pastors, leading our people in those directions. Pastors, they also, it also says, need to be people who hold fast to the trustworthy word and are able to teach others in it. Okay, so one of the things that we often do, it's not the only thing that we do, but one of the things that we do is just go through books of the Bible and we just teach the Word. And we believe that if we just teach books of the Bible and, and, and continue to do that and give people a steady diet of it, they're going to also hold fast to the trusty, trustworthy Word. But in verse 9 where he's talking about holding fast to the trustworthy Word and instructing in sound doctrine, he has one more phrase there that tips us off to the reality that not all was totally well on the island of Crete. Because there's one other thing that pastors need to be able to do. At the end of verse 9, it says they need to also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Which clues us in that all is not always going to be well. That you can teach sound doctrine, that you can teach the trustworthy word, but there are going to be people who do not teach that. There are going to be people who teach an alternative to that. And so pastors need to be people who are able and willing to contradict it. As we've been studying this book together, I've told you at the beginning, and I'll refresh your memory, that we've been looking at it under three main buckets We've been talking about the good life. We spent our, our first time talking about motivations for the good life. That was our, our first heading. We then talked about relationships in the good life, and we saw what the book of Titus has to say about all sorts of relationships in the home, in the church, in the community, at work. And now, in just one sermon today, we are going to look at the third major heading as we're examining the good life, and that is the enemies of the good life. Because believe me, there are people out there who want to take what we have. and We should not let them. Paul gives Titus two warnings in this letter, one in chapter 1 and one in verse chapter 3, about people who would destroy the good life that God wants for his people. Why must these newly appointed pastors rebuke those who contradict the trustworthy word? Well, the answer is given beginning in chapter 1 and verse 10. If you're there in the book of Titus, look with me at chapter 1 and verse 10. We're going to read verses 10 to 16 together, and then we're going to jump ahead and read verses 9 to 11 in chapter 3. The Word of God says this, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. (laughs) 
Got to love Paul. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. All right, now let's look at chapter 3, because he's got a little bit more in the clip. 3 verses, verses 9 to 11. He reminds at the end of his letter, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. All right, what are we going to do with this? I want to spend a little bit of time asking three questions that I hope surface a little bit of what's going on in these passages of Scripture this morning. The first question I want to ask is this. Who are the enemies of the good life? Who are the enemies of the good life? And we have to piece it together a little bit because we're, we're coming in from a different culture and time and looking at a situation that we're not exactly clear on what was going on. As Paul is writing this letter to Titus, Titus knows exactly who, who he has in mind. He knows the names of the people he has in mind. He knows exactly what these people are teaching. When, 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 when Paul says, warns them about these people who are ta- spending their time talking about genealogies, he's like, yep, that's one of the things they're doing. When we're looking at them, they're like, we're like, well, what's wrong with Ancestry.com? I mean, we just don't know exactly what the circumstances are of what was going on at, in these moments. But we can piece a little bit of it together. One, we know that these people are teachers. It's talking about how they're, they're, they're speaking. Uh, I believe verse 11 refers to them as teachers. They are teachers who are contradicting the trustworthy word of the gospel and sound doctrine that had been entrusted to these Christians. And we know from the text that these people have their roots in these Cretan Jewish communities. And historically, we know that there were Jewish communities on the island of Crete at this time. And so it's very possible that these are people who are culturally Cretan, but live in Jewish communities who have in some way embraced Christ. And I say in some way embraced Christ because they are, they are described as being members of what, what is strangely said in your text, the circumcision party. Okay, and this is referring to a group of people who, who wanted to have a blend between Christian belief and practice with Jewish beliefs and practices. And this was a huge issue in the New Testament. It shows up lots and lots of times. In fact, it becomes such an issue as we see the gospel moving through Asia Minor in the book of Acts, we see that it's becoming such an issue that word actually gets back to Jerusalem, kind of the center of it all, 
And a bunch of leaders in Jerusalem have to gather together to have something that's often referred to as the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Because these people are going so far as to say that unless you believe in Christ and follow the customs of Moses, which includes circumcision, you can't be saved. That's a direct quote from Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. They say that unless you embrace Jesus and add all of these things to it, you cannot be saved. So we're not talking about a minor er uh, error, are we? We're talking about people who claim to be Christians and yet bring something in that say to be a Christian you believe in Jesus plus this. And anytime the message of the gospel is Jesus plus something, you have messed up. You have destroyed the message of the gospel. This is probably who these teachers are. They're advocating this blend of Jewish and Christian practices. But they're also very much people of their own culture. They're people of their own culture in Crete. And to make this argument, Paul says that these teachers play into a, a, a warning from one of their own about a stereotype of Cretan culture. Uh, it was said, he says, he, he quotes there, it was said of one of their own that Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Many scholars attribute this to a man by the name of Epimenides. Epimenides. And Epimenides is a strange character to quote. Uh, you can really delve into this a lot, but I'll just, I'll just tell you this. Supposedly, Epimenides was out in, uh, out in a field, and he found a cave that had been uh, associated with Zeus. And he went to that cave, and he fell asleep in that cave for 57 years. And when, yeah, I know. And when Epimenides woke up 57 years later, he, all, he was supposed to all of a sudden have these prophetic and philosophic powers. He was a seer. He was a person that, that, that had all of these strange abilities. And it's said that when he died, they got his body to bury it and they, they saw that he had tattoos all and writing all over his body. Now, what of that is true, and what of that is the stuff of legends? I don't know. I'm guessing the 57-year nap at least is the stuff of legends. But that's Epimenides, a pretty weird guy. But he would, also, he would often write and lampoon or skewer Cretan culture as one of them. So, so Paul is saying... That not only, not only are these teachers trying to blend something with Christian practice to say, this is what you really have to do. This is the formula to really live the good life. But he's also highlighting the fact that these people have not truly been transformed by the gospel. They are still very much children of their culture, which is always a danger for us. It is always a danger for us for us to assume that our cultural values uh, are, are normal and right and good and not to examine our cultural values, in fact, by the teachings of Scripture. 
He calls these people lazy gluttons, and he says in verse 11 that they're motivated by what he calls shameful gain. The sense in which they are, they're grifters. They're motivated, it seems, by money, by power, by influence. And because this is such a significant problem, and I I say it's a significant problem because of the way Paul talks about it. He doesn't pull any punches, right? It doesn't seem like he's trying to tiptoe around the issue, does he? When you read what he says in these chapters, he says then, because of all of these factors, these people are warped, sinful, self-condemned, They're at odds with God's purposes for the followers of Jesus. And Paul uh, says, uh, the whole point of me, me writing this to you, Titus, is that you can teach them to devote themselves to good works. And these teachers, in verse 16, are unfit for any good work. They're working against the gospel purposes. This is who they are. Second question, the second and third questions, we'll be answering a little bit more quickly. But what in the text, what are the problems that they create? What are the problems that these false teachers create? And I'll, I'll, I'll state them that the two problems are this. They deceive God's people and they divide God's people. They deceive And they divide. Chapter 1 and verse 10 says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Then if you look at what the Bible says in uh, 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 chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. I'm trying to find it. Here it is. Uh, uh, But avoid foolish controversies, uh, uh, genealogies, dissensions. All these things are are unprofitable and worthless. And verse 10 says, as for a person who stirs up division. So one of the things that they do is they either deceive God's people by teaching something that is contrary to Scripture, or they divide God's people by getting God's people to argue a lot. Can't imagine that something like that happening, can we? They deceive and they divide. All right, then the third question that we want to ask is this, what should the response be? What did, what did Paul say to Titus that the response ought to be? Well, he tells him in verse uh, chapter 1 and verse 13, these teachers should be rebuked. And he not only does he say they should be rebuked, he says they should be rebuked sharply. In other words, it needs to be not just a tiny little slap on the wrist, but it needs to be made very clear that this is false teaching. This is why Paul wanted Titus to be careful which Cretan Christians he chose to serve as pastors. They needed people who were willing, who, who first of all, could hold fast to the trustworthy word that had been delivered to them, They needed to be able to not only hold fast to it personally themselves, they needed to be able to teach it to others. And when the case arose, they needed to be able to defend and, in some instances, even rebuke and rebuke sharply 
those who were engaged in false teaching. We might ask the further question, okay, but what if, what if they won't hear that? Because that's kind of the way it is with false teachers, right? The vast majority of the time, a false teacher is called out. They don't say, thank you so much. I had seen it wrong this whole time, and you have shown me the error of my ways. I am now going to get uh, on the internet and apologize and do everything I can to make this right. Uh, what often happens most of the time with false teachers is that they double down. They dig in. And so what are we supposed to do when that happens? Well, Paul addresses that in chapter 3. Remember what he said? After warning them once and warning them twice, have nothing more to do with them. Okay, shut them out. Shut them down. Don't tolerate false teaching. Don't give them a voice in the church. Okay. So, I know we just kind of ran through that really fast, but what I wanted to do with these passages of Scripture is I just wanted to set the table for you as best we can about what's going on in this situation. So to review, this start, first started coming out of the fact that, that Paul has told Titus that he's got to appoint pastors who hold to the word, teach the word, and are able to rebuke. Well, why would we need to rebuke? Because there are people who don't do that. There are people who don't hold fast to the trustworthy word. There are people who teach in opposition to the trustworthy word. And so we need to have people who not only know, but are willing to contradict those who do that. What are they going to do? Well, one of the things that you'll notice here, and one of the things that we need to keep in mind as we continue thinking about the, these uh, past two passages of Scripture and, and how they apply to us in our specific situation, is that none of these false teachers are standing out and saying, guess what? You've got, the Bible is wrong. I've got something else for you. That's not what false teachers do. We often expect that false teachers are going to have horns and carry a pitchfork and they're going to have an upside-down cross on their Bible and it's going to be very obvious to us that they're teaching something that is a different gospel. But that's precisely the danger of false teachers. They come to you looking like you and sounding right and having the appearance of piety, and claiming to do, bio, to, to do good works, and opening the Bible that you open, and yet in doing all those very acts, they are still leading you astray. That's why it's dangerous. It is almost never abundantly obvious, and when it is abundantly obvious, we all agree on it. I could name half a dozen people of like, this person is a false teacher and this person is a false teacher. And we'd be like, yep, 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 for sure. We could, we could probably agree 100%. But then there's a whole group of people right here that would be like, now, wait a minute. What is here for us as we think about the enemies of the good life and their prevention of our flourishing in Jesus. We might be tempted to think that this is less of a danger in our day. 
After all, we're not living on the island of Crete. We're not dealing with Jewish communities who are trying to, to blend Christian practice and Judaism in, in, in some sort of Frankenstein sort of way. And so what can happen is we, we look at something like this and say, well, I think I understand what's going on there, but we fail to see the relevance of it for our own lives. I would actually argue that we are more in danger of this in our day than they ever were. And here's why I would argue that we are actually more in danger in our present day than they were. Think about this. If a false teacher wanted to have a voice in one of the churches on Crete, what would they have to do? They'd have to physically go there. There's no Christian publishing industry. The Cretans don't have phones. They don't have computers. They don't have radios. They don't have podcasts. They don't have books. They don't have any of those things. The only way false teaching can make an, an, an inroad into these assemblies is if one of the false teachers physically goes there and sits down and says, hey, I've got something that I want to share with you. That's less likely to happen for us. But what's more dangerous, I think, is that our contact with them is now more impersonal. You don't ever actually have to look one of these teachers in the eye. The likelihood of them actually coming to our church is, is probably pretty low. Although now we're probably kind of looking around and be like, which one is it? But even though you may not be physically present with them, they have 24-hour-a-day access to you. They have access through their publishing. They have access to you through social media, your Facebook feed, your Twitter slash X feed, the podcasts that you listen to, the sermons that get recommended to you. And once they get a few clicks from you, the algorithm takes over. And it will give you a Golden Corral buffet, never-ending buffet of stuff to consume. And you can even get locked into thinking as that world becomes more and more curated for you on your Facebook feed, that this must be what Christians think. Because my feed is full Christians thinking this. We never stop to ask if we're being shaped more by the algorithm and by the fact that a lot of other Christians think this than we are by the scriptures. It is very, very easy to be pulled away from the trustworthy word. 
the effect that this has on God's people can still be that it deceives and divides. Just like it was doing on Crete. C.S. Lewis wrote a book that many of you have probably at least heard of at some point in your lives. It's called The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters is uh, a, 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 a fictional account of letters from uh, a demon named Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood. And these letters are all meant to, to uh, just, like, just like Paul is mentoring Titus on how to lead these Christians into the good life, these are fictionalized letters from a demonic influence to someone who is trying to, to influence some, someone in the book that's referred to as the patient out of the good life. And so you have all of these, you have all of these letters kind of lampooning all of, the, uh, all of the tactics that Satan would take to get us sidetracked. One of the things that is, is in one of these letters is that Screwtape basically says, obviously we would like the patient to be out of church. But we probably can't prevent that from happening. So the big thing would be get him out of church, get him isolated that way. But if you can't keep them out of church, he counsels him, cause division in it. And you'll accomplish the same thing. Let me read you what he says. He says, I think I warned you before that if your patient can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on really doctrinal issues. About those, the more more lukewarm he is, the better. And it isn't the doctrines on which we chiefly depend for producing malice. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say mass and those who say holy communion when neither party could possibly state the difference. And all the purely indifferent things, candles and clothes and whatnot, are an admirable ground for our activities. Now, C.S. Lewis is writing a long time ago about items uh, revolving around the Church of England, which don't matter. So, so, so trade out the particularities of, of what he has just said and recognize kind of the brilliance of Lewis here in recognizing Satan's devices. If you can't keep Christians out of the church, let them gather together but still keep them apart. And you can do that not by arguing on these main battlegrounds of doctrine. In fact, it's best that we not care about that stuff. Instead, get them constantly arguing and quarreling about a whole bunch of things that are are matters of indifference about candles and clothes and what we call this and what we call that. If you can't destroy the church, divide it. It's, it's just as effective. So, let me ask the question then, what are our Jewish myths? What are our foolish controversies? 
I'm not going to name them. But let me say this. I'm still a little bit uh, gun-shy from the last election cycle that we went through. That was super unfun. And we're going to do it again. There are, as I said, an endless buffet of conspiracy theories that Christians get so distracted with. And you start following down the rabbit hole, and you watch YouTube video after YouTube video after YouTube video. And I'm not saying that there's no conspiracies. I'm saying a lot of the ones that we often fall for are pretty far-fetched. I'm not saying there aren't conspiracy theories. There's all kinds of documented conspiracy theories. But what I am saying is that we are, as evangelical Christians, people who have a unique blend of politics and culture, whether we realize it or not. And that blend of politics and culture, when combined with the algorithm that continues to feed us thing after thing after thing, and what I fear it ends up doing is that we consume six days of content Six days of, of, of controversy, and it changes us. We walk in side-eyeing each other. Hmm. You hear people say one trigger word, and you're like, And we can easily have what Lewis refers to as a party spirit. And it's no surprise that at this moment in our culture, and I don't think this is going to last, but right now, some of the fastest growing churches are the ones that have made political allegiances part of their platform. And that many people would rather choose a church based on the algorithm than the scriptures. So you see, we can say all day, genealogies, who's arguing about that? Wasn't silly to them. It was a matter of great importance to them. And that was the problem. But it's not just the endless stream of conspiracy theories that our algorithm provides us with. It's also the continual arguments from Christian people. Social media is discipling you. And it's discipling you more than you think. And if you think, not me, I'm talking to you. 
you're the person that needs to hear it the most. Because it's teaching us ways of being. I am not saying that, and I'm totally off the reservation sermon-wise now. I am not saying that doctrine doesn't matter. And, and somebody might be tempted to say, well, he just said, you know, none of this stuff matters. Well, we've just been talking from Titus about, he says, they've got to be able to hold fast to the trustworthy word. So it must mean that there are a whole bunch of things in the trustworthy word that are important, and then there are a whole bunch of other things that aren't, that are, that are matters of indifference. Older Christians had a word for that. It was called adiaphora. It was matters of indifference. It was, it was things that we're fully convinced about in our own minds, and yet we're not on a mission to make everybody else think the same thing about every small thing. The algorithm is discipling you, and the people that are using the algorithm know how to make the algorithm work. And one of the things that fuels clicks is anger. One of the things that fuels clicks is seeing somebody get owned by my team. One of the things that fuels clicks is an argument. And what the algorithm and what social media is, is, is doing is it is not just giving us information. You think that we can sit there and look at this stuff and just take it in passively, but it isn't just something to be taken in passively. It is discipling you. It is shaping who you are. It is shaping you emotionally. It is shaping what you love. It is setting your expectations. And friends, we must be careful with it. Because now you can have people, listen, anybody can put up a website and talk long enough and be an authority on something. It's, you don't have to do anything to be recognized as an authority now as, as except talk, talk a lot, and look good while you talk. That's all you have to do to be recognized as an authority. So we need to take care because, because what, what happens is the voices that are bombarding us from every angle can plant dissension and division in our hearts. And there's a good aspect to this. Now that I'm just rambling on about it, what time is it? 11.05, okay. <sighs> there's a good aspect to this because sometimes you have pastors and churches that are, are not healthy places and the voices from outside show you, hey, you're in a place that's not healthy. You're under leadership that's, that's not healthy. Okay, so there's the good aspect of it. But there's also the negative aspect of it where you're, you're so embroiled in fights and controversies and keywords that when you come to your own church with the pastors and people that know and love you who might accidentally say the wrong word that you're like, well, what does that mean? 
because so-and-so warned me if he says this, he must mean this. Maybe. We could talk about it. Or we could just be mad. Or spend six months building assumptions. I think you get my point. You are being formed. Every moment of every day, you are being formed into the person that you are becoming, whether you are aware of it or not. We talked about this at the beginning of Titus as the need for spiritual formation. You are being spiritually formed at every moment. What by? That's the question. What by? And is it producing in you a reflection of the good life? Or is it something else? How do we spot these false teachers? Uh, And this is... This is the real challenge. (laughs) And this is the hard thing for me, and this is the thing that I have wrestled with for as long as I've been thinking about this sermon, which was into last year. It's a challenge because, like I said, false teachers don't have horns and pitchforks. They will profess quite loudly, according to chapter 1 and verse 16, to know God. They will be teachers. They will be skillful with words. They will probably have a lot of Bible knowledge. They're not people that are going to be uninformed about the Bible. And here's the challenge. Spotting them and responding to them is is necessarily subjective. We don't like subjective, but it's I'm telling you, I think it's just the way it is. We want court of law kind of proof. And we don't always have it. So how do we spot them? I'm going to give you five questions briefly to just ask. These five questions kind of work together. I believe these five questions are rooted in the text. And I believe they'll help us, but they're not going to remove the ambiguity. And we see the ambiguity in our text because Paul says, rebuke them, rebuke them sharply. Well, what if they don't respond to that? Warn them, warn them twice, and have nothing to do with them. In other words, have nothing to do with them despite their protests otherwise. You're misreading me. You're mishearing me. I didn't mean that. You haven't seen all of everything that I've had to say. You took my statements out of context. Eventually, we just have to make a call. And there's subjectivity to that. But here are questions to ask. Number one, what is their attitude towards authority? I'm getting this from chapter 1 and verse 10 because it says in chapter 1 and verse 10 that they are insubordinate. Do the voices that have access to your heart have any real accountability in their lives and ministries? Or have they created little kingdoms for themselves? 
Have they ever admitted they're wrong about anything? Wouldn't you be amazed if some well-known person admitted they had been wrong about something? When does that ever happen? If you are a full-time teacher for a living, you're going to be wrong. I'm going to be wrong. I have to have the willingness when shown that to say, you're right. I didn't see it that way. What is their attitude towards authority? Number two, do the people in their ministry flourish? Getting this from chapter 1 and verse 11 where it talks about upsetting whole families by their teaching. There are so many ministries out there that can tell you how to be the perfect husband, the perfect wife, the perfect parent. They can give you the script and the book and the resources to do everything exactly right. And I just want to tell you, I want to warn you, don't believe the brochures. The families on the brochures look great. What are the families that are actually bearing the crushing load of all these things doing? And there are ministries that pull women and children in and spit them out. And it looks great on the, outs- on the outside, but the bus has rolled over some bodies. Number three, what do they stand to gain? Chapter 1 and verse 11. What do they stand to gain? They teach for shameful gain. There are a lot of grifters out there. For better or for worse... Christianity is good money. You can monetize that platform really well. And, and I'm not saying you don't have to raise money for the ministry. I mean, websites that get lots of traffic, you've got to pay hosting fees, and there's all kinds of legitimate stuff out there. But just watch out. Just watch. What do they have to sell? And how much are they selling? And what are, how are the people at the top living? Number four, does their teaching line up with Scripture? Does their teaching line up with Scripture? Now, you might say, that's kind of a duh. <laughs> but I'm including that as one of the questions that you need to ask because it's not always going to be obvious. And one of the skills of spiritual maturity is being able to look at a particular text of Scripture that a person is, be, is using and saying, does that fit with the rest of Scripture? Because there's those two Proverbs that are back-to-back, intentionally put together, don't answer a fool according to his folly, and answer a fool according to his folly. And there are people who do the equivalent of picking one of them. And they build a whole ministry about not answering the fool according to his folly when there's another verse that says the other thing too. So does their, does their teaching fit with not only the rest of Scripture but the flavor, the, 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 the character, the feeling of Scripture? Number five. Do they major on what matters most? Do they major on what matters most? For many of these people, the brand is controversy. 
if you have something to sell, then you need people to need that thing. And many people out there have a brand who, it, that is stoked by controversy. What everyone else is doing wrong. Because if I can point out what everybody else is doing wrong, I can solidify people around me. He must be the guy that knows it all. We better trust him to get us out of this. Don't trust people who have built their whole ministry on why everyone else is wrong. Those are five questions that I think just kind of work together. As we're evaluating the voices that have aspects to uh, have uh, have uh, access to our lives, and I know I've gone a long time, and I'm sorry, Joseph, and I'm sorry, kids workers. <laughs> Let me, let me close it this way. I've got other things to say, but let me close it with this way. One of the things that, one of the things that I do in membership interviews is I, I ask people why they came to our church and why they stayed. Oftentimes that's something I ask in a membership interview. And because I want to know what initially attracted you and then after attending, why did you, why did you keep on attending? Because, you know, website's always better than the reality. <laughs> and I'll tell you what they don't say. You, Matt, are such an amazing preacher. We thought, we got to be here. <laughs> they don't say, this seems like the most exciting church we've ever been to. It's hard for people to identify sometimes what it is that brings them here. And what a lot of times what people, say, what people will say is, there's just something that I experienced here that I hadn't experienced other places. And I think I know what that is after talking to a lot of people about it. I think it's culture. I think... A lot of times that people come to our church, and it's not perfect, and I'm sure there are some of you who are having a rough time here right now that are like, man, I wish I was having that experience. I get it. Not everybody in the church is having the same experience in the church. But a lot of times what keeps people here is something that they can't totally articulate. But what I think it is, in some small way, by God's grace, is that there is an experience of the gospel in Jesus Christ here. That we are not arguing about all of those things, though some of that stuff is important in its place. That we're a people who are a little bit messed up. And we've had people who have come here and said, I'm thankful that I don't have to have everything together, that maybe my family is in shambles right now and it's fallen apart or I've got this difficult thing in my life and I was still accepted. I think that is what some people are experiencing when they come to our church. And I think the Spirit is at work in us 
to form us like Christ, and I think he's doing that. And Satan doesn't want that to happen. He wants to take it from you. And the warning of this passage of Scripture is that not just the pastors, but the people of our church say, no, not on our watch. We are not going to let that happen. We're not going to tolerate those divisive voices. We're not going to tolerate those deceptive voices because we want to be a people who flourish the way God intended us to. You are flourishing. There are signs of growth springing up all over this place, and I hear about them in ways that I didn't even know all the time, and we're not going to let Satan put us under his boot. But it's going to take all of us working together to do it. So I'll leave you with this. And do you want me to try to land this plane myself since I've gone over so long, or do you want to try to do it? You could still do it? Okay. Okay. That's why I apologize to Joseph. Who knows how long I've gone here. I want to read to you uh, from the end of the chapter, chapter 3. Verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Okay, so if you're here with us this morning and you don't know Christ, we are a people who want to passionately pursue good works. We do not pursue good works because we want to get God's favor. We pursue God's work, God, good works because we already have it. We want to live a life of flourishing, not so that, not so that we can get something from God, but because we've already been given everything in Christ. And in fact, you could join us in that life by turning in faith to Christ, and there's people around you who would love to talk with you about it. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works of, by, uh, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's what we're being called to in Jesus. That those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to the life of flourishing that comes in loving and following Jesus. Let's pray and ask him to help us. Lord, I've preached a long time, but I pray that you would help us to heed the warnings, that you would protect us from the fiery darts of the evil one, that we would be a church that when people walk into it, they would say, hmm, what's going on here? Because this is different. It's out of step with cultural norms and in step with the kingdom of God. I pray that you would form us deeply into those kinds of people in Jesus' name.